All right, all right. Thank you for joining me on this episode of the Gospel Truth. I'm your host, Martin Wilson, and we have another grand, fantastic debate for you. Uh, we're going to be having a discussion concerning predestination. And I have Curtis Bobby and I have uh, Porter Larson with me, and they're going to be describing or discussing predestination from a Calvinistic perspective and a Mormon perspective. Uh, if you were surprised to hear that the Mormons have a view of predestination, I am just as surprised as you. Surprised as you. I did not know that. Um, and so I am very much going to be looking into, listening to this debate to learn something new about Mormonism. But before I bring these guys in, I do want to encourage you to subscribe to the Gospel Truth. Hit that notification bell. Please do that and make sure you do that fast now because this is not the only debate that we have on the schedule. We have a whole bunch of debates and shows that are coming up here in the future that you do not want to miss. So make sure you are subscribing to the Gospel Truth. Also, all this content, some of this content in different fashions is on different platforms as well. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. So make sure you are flowing to those platforms forums to subscribe and follow on those platforms as well also uh this content is on podcast i haven't updated the podcast lately i will be doing so here soon but you can subscribe and follow to the podcast apples uh, uh itunes google play stitcher spotify so make sure you are flowing over there to subscribe to the gospel truth on those platforms those ipod or uh, podcast platforming platforms all right that's it let me go over a couple shows that are coming up here in the future all right next up after this a debate concerning is Jesus the Father. I have Dr. Michael Burgos and Brandon Nero that's going to be jumping on here. And so uh, this should be a fun debate, a well-informed debate. And I'm looking forward to this one. Next up, uh, the topic of this debate has sort of changed. It is not Jesus is the only God. Uh, this is, again, a Mormon Protestant debate concerning uh, the deity of Jesus. So what the topic is going to be is Jesus, the same substance as the father. That is what the debate is going to be concerning. So I hope you are looking forward to this one as I am as well. After that, I have a pretty big debate coming up, or this is probably more like an open discussion versus a formal debate. I have uh, Michael Jones, Inspired Philosophy, and Tyler Vila that's going to be jumping on here. And this is going to be a, a fun discussion concerning divine hiddenness. Uh, Big, a big topic within the atheist or agnostic um, or even just plain theist not really holding to a Christian view theist position which Tyler holds to and uh, this should be a fun discussion both of these guys I know and they are cool peeps man so I do want to make sure that you guys are well aware of this one so you don't want to miss out on that one after that, baptism regeneration. I have Cody Sorensen and Jeremiah Nortier. This is going to be a fun debate, right? Uh, Jeremiah has been debating baptism regeneration like it seems like forever. Uh, seems like every time he debates someone, it's about baptism regeneration. But uh, nonetheless, he is jumping in on the gospel truth. And Cody Sorensen, both of these guys have been on before, so I'm looking forward to this debate. So I hope you are as well. Uh, that said, that is all the debate, all the the. Uh, What's called announcements that I have for you as of right now. And so once again, tonight's debate is going to be concerning predestination, right? Predestination. This is a fun conversation. It could ruffle some feathers, uh, the idea of predestination. Uh, but we are going to have a fun one. Let me bring the fellas in so we can get this show rolling. What's going on, fellas? How y'all doing? Doing great. How you doing, Marlon? Good. good, good. Glad you guys good. joined me. Welcome back, Curtis. Hope all is well with you. How you been? Life is good, busy, but good. All right, all right. And Porter, this is your first go around on the Gospel Truth, man. I'm hoping that this will be a great experience for you. And uh, 
I'm excited for this one, man, and I'm looking forward to this topic. Uh, once again, I'm sort of surprised that Mormonism has a has a, a predestination uh, aspect to it. Uh, I, I've never really dove into it, never really heard about it, so I'm looking forward once again to this topic and sort of educate myself on this topic matter here. Uh, but before we jump into this debate, I'm gonna give you guys a chance to introduce, introduce yourselves to the audience. Uh, let them know what you do, podcast, YouTube, blogs or if you don't have anything that's fine as well but just go ahead and introduce yourselves to them and let them know who you are right start with mr curtis bobby go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself of yourself well actually you got my name wrong it's body um body my bad my yeah, bad let me change good, that real man. quick <laughs> i've been called i've been called significantly worse so no um so i am a layman at first baptist in byram i've been doing a amateur apologetics for since I was uh, 11th grade. Um, I somewhat semi-blog on, on my blog called Always Reforming. Um, that's a little bit about me. I work in retail, um, oldest of three kids, and uh, apologetics and outreach, uh, missionary work is something I have strong interest in. And so just trying to love the Lord and his people and serve him well. All right, all right. Thank you so much, Mr. Curtis. Body, my bad, man. I made him destroy your name. Sorry about that, buddy. All right, Mr. Larson, you're up next, man. Go ahead and give a quick introduction to yourself, man. Yeah, I'm Porter Larson. I've, um, uh, I just love the gospel. I love talking about Jesus Christ and his scriptures. Um, and I'm excited to be here. I'm a layman. I don't have any podcast or articles uh, to read about. Um, but I love to engage in conversation about Christ. So that's why I'm here. All right, all right. Cool, cool. All right. I am glad once again for both of you guys being here. And we are going to jump into this. We're going to start this off with 10 minute openings, and then we're going to follow that with a 60 minute open discussion where you guys just be conversing for a good 60 minutes about the subject matter. And then we're going to follow that with five minute closings. Then we have a 30 minute QA from the audience. Sounds good? All right. Porter, you're up first. And let me get you set up with your time and everything. All right, all you guys remember that you hear this little chime when you hit that one minute mark in your presentation. So that means to start wrapping it up, all right? All right, so let me make sure your time is right. And then I will give you the go ahead to start. All right, you're good to go. You can, uh, you, when you start, I'll start your time. Okay, perfect. Thank you, Marlon. And I wanna thank Curtis as well for coming on here as well as the audience for, for listening to this debate tonight. Um, as uh, Marlon pointed out, we both have a view on predestination. The word predestination is a scriptural word. The Greek pro oritio occurs in um, Romans 8 and 9 and Ephesians. Um, so of course we, we believe in the doctrine of predestination, but Curtis and I have significantly different understandings of this doctrine. Um, the, the debate tonight is I don't go as far as maybe a, a double predestination uh, Reformed Baptist might in saying that God before the foundation of the world ordains some to damnation and others to salvation, that this is apart from human choice and this is by uh, an irresistible will. Um, I, I think that in order to win this debate tonight, Curtis should show that un unambiguous proof from the scriptural text that God has predestined some to go to heaven and others to hell apart from human choice. But if I can disprove just one of these ideas, um, then I think I should win. Now, my view of predestination is slightly um, less severe than Curtis's. I believe that God may bring certain families. He may bring us to earth at a certain time, that he may have certain missions for man on earth. 
Um, this we see in, in Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5, that he was ordained to be a prophet before he was even born. Um, yet we do not go so far to eliminate human choice or decision from the matters of salvation. Um, I, I'll appeal to this in several ways. The, the first way I want to ask of Scripture is, do the Scriptures outline God's will relative to human salvation? Does it really say that God only wants a few to be saved, or does it talk about a universal salvation? Second, do the Scriptures record the perfect fulfillment of God's desire for salvation, which would be a necessity of an irresistible will? On the first topic, God's desire for salvation is expressed clearly in the following passages, John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The Greek word here is cosmos, meaning the inhabitants of the earth, or the whole earth, or the whole universe, depending on its placement in Scripture. This message of a universal salvation is prominent in Scripture. It appears in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 3 through 6. Uh, 1 John chapter 2, 1 through 2, My little children, these things I write unto you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. For he is the propitiation of our sins, but not our sins only, but also for the whole world. It's written in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 6, Titus 2, 11, John 12, 32, Luke 19, 10. They all declare the same message along with 2 Peter 3, verse 8, and of course, Romans chapter 5, which we'll analyze later. Secondly, is God's will irresistible? And the answer to this again in Scripture is quite clear, that God's will is resistible. Galatians chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 5, verse 4 I apologize, states, Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. If God's grace and election are irresistible, then surely man cannot fall from it. Ezekiel, 11, or Ezekiel 33, verse 11. As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel? Even though Christ desires the salvation of all mankind, we have the free moral agency to turn away from this salvation. God's will is not perfectly fulfilled in the person of Jesus when Jesus stands on the wall of Jerusalem and says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them, which are sent unto thee, how oft I would have gathered thee as a hen gathered her chicks, but ye would not. Again and again we see that God's will for our salvation, for our gathering, is not always fulfilled. I propose a better answer. I believe that God freely invites us to enter into a relationship with him, a relationship of covenant. We see in Malachi chapter 3, verse 7, Since the days of your fathers you have turned from my statutes, you have not kept them. Return unto me, and I will return unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. How is it possible that if God's grace is what pulls us to God, that we return first to the Father and then him to us? Such a message is, is not consonant with Scripture. Many other passages record our ability to turn to Christ, regardless of Christ first turning to us. Um, well, he, his, his will is universal, so he's always turning to us. But but we enter into a relationship with him, such as the, the message of Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30, Hosea 6 through 14, Acts 7 and 51. What then do we do with uh, Romans chapter 8 and 9? I want to situate this in the historical literary context. Specifically, I believe that the book of Romans is best read to correct an idea with which Paul, as a former Pharisee, was very familiar. The claim that, uh, regardless of what they do, Israel would be universally saved. This claim is already addressed by John the Baptist in Matthew chapter 3. Um, but here it is in the Mishnah, in the book of Sanhedrin, in the 10th chapter, in the first verse. All Israelites will have a share in the world to come. 
As it is said, your people shall also be righteous. They shall inherit the land forever. The branch of my planting, the work of my hands, that I may be glorified. This we will see Paul specifically responds to, this quotation of Isaiah chapter 60. Verse 21 is responded to specifically by Paul in his letter to the Romans. It's a master class in how to teach that not all Israel is truly Israel. Paul begins in Romans chapter 1, showing that God's grace is extended to all. Romans 1 verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto the salvation of everyone that believeth, to the, Jew, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he provides the fact that we are turned away from God by our own actions in verse 28. He continues his commentary in Romans chapter 2, providing more condemnation of the Jewish belief of predestination and the doctrine of predestination, or the Jewish doctrine of predestination, by stating that the Jews are next to the Greeks in glory and all will be judged according to their works and only those who perse patiently persevere will inherit. Chapter 3 continues along the same lines, that it is Christ who ultimately sets us free from sin, and this is both the Jew and Gentile. Do we get the point yet? God, Christ is, or Paul is correcting a false tradition held among the Jews. Uh, chapter 4 makes very much the same point. Speaking of the work of circumcision, the way that we enter into Judaism is not what saves us, for it could not have saved Abraham. Um, chapter 5 doubles down on this idea, the universality of salvation. Therefore, as by the offense of one came judgment upon all men, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto the justification of life. To say that the free gift of God in Christ is universal is the same thing as to say that the fall of Adam was universal, which we all affirm. Chapter 6 talks about how we were born again through Christ in baptism. But this condition, this grace, is not irresistible. If we yield ourselves members to sin, we will become slaves to sin. What then is the purpose of Romans chapter 8 and 9? Is it to show that predestination, that God favors some regardless of what they've done, depending on his own sovereign will into the family that which they're born? No, this is very close to the view of the Pharisees that Paul is correcting. He instead chooses to show that, that God's grace is to all, that is conditional, and specifically uh, that it differs from the state of our birth or from something that happened before we are born. Romans 9 gives great examples of this. This is why Jacob inherits over Esau. Esau comes first, and so he must have the primogeniture, the, the firstborn inheriting all things. But Esau is not the one that inherits. He sells his lineage, he sells his um, heritage for a mess of pottage. So too is it with the example of Pharaoh, which is given uh, in the same chapter, where Pharaoh turns his own heart to be hardened in, the, in Exodus chapter 7 and 13, uh, 7, 13, 22, uh, chapter 8, 15, and 19, and chapter 9 and 7. All this is before God acts on his own to harden uh, Pharaoh's heart and verses, in chapter 9, verse 12. Therefore, we hold that, that man is free to make his own decision. Paul will further prosecute this point in Romans chapter 11, verse 22. Behold, therefore, the goodness and the severity of God on them which fell, severity towards thee, goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou shalt be cut off. What is the moral responsibility of man? It is to continue in the goodness of God, the grace which is shed by Christ upon all mankind. The doctrine held by John Calvin and, and proposed by Augustine um, is, is not that found in Scripture, and it is not universally taught there. Instead, very much the opposite is found in the book of Romans and throughout the message of Scripture. God desires the salvation of all mankind, and he invites you and me to freely join in that salvation. Um, so I, I guess with that, I yield my time. I have a minute left, but... 
All right, cool. Thank you so much, Porter, for that opening statement. And now, Curtis, you are in your in the hot seat for your ten minute opening. And I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. All right. I want to thank Marlon. You have hosted me once before, about a little two years ago. Wow, time flies. And I want to thank Porter for his of opening his schedule um, to come and have this dialogue. I think it's a very important one, like you said. Ruffle some feathers, as one spiritual mentor of mine used to say, some things can be uh, um, But first, I want to address two things, and then I want to address two more things. The first thing that we have to recognize in Calvinism within predestination is that man, we do not condemn the idea of, and the reason I feel comfortable to say that as a Reformed Baptist who holds confessionally to the 1689 London Baptist Confession, chapter nine of concerning men, God has endured the will of man with natural liberty and power of my choice that it is neither forced, we have to emphasize that word, nor by any necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. And the, the quotations is James chapter one, verse 14, Deuteronomy chapter 30, Matthew 17. It then goes on to talk about the fall of man, man by his fall into a state of ability of will to do any spiritual good Accompany salvation so as a natural man being altogether averse from the good and dead in sin is not able to by his own strength to convert or to prepare himself therefore unto and then one more in paragraph four when god converts the sinner and translates him to a state of grace he frees him from the natural bondage of sin and by his grace alone enables him to freely do will will and to do what is spiritually good yet so that by the reasoning of his remaining corruption he does not perfectly, nor will he do which is good, but does which also is evil. So that's the first point. And the second point is, when we speak of man's free will and Calvinism, man is judged for his intention, not God's decree. For example, when you read in Isaiah 10, God is Israel. And I'm going to string this point along, so bear with me. I'm sorry the king of Assyria off Israel he wants to destroy Israel that's his intention God says but before he announces a prophet, he says I'm going to use Assyria and rod against the people of Israel when Assyria boasts in their own hearts their intentions their intentions is not to serve God their intentions is to go against God and his people yet God uses their free will vision against Israel and then judges them for their evil intention, even though God used them as a means to an end. The second point I want to talk about is, and this is this might be outside of the scope of debate, but I think it's within the scope of the debate to a certain degree, is what do we believe about the state of man? When we talk about, when people speak of the will of man being free, it is true. I could have freely decided to wear my Green Bay Packers shirt instead of this one. I could have freely decided to have McDonald's for lunch instead of Whataburger. That's not the discussion. He's saying that Porter brought up Romans chapter 1 because when it speaks in verses 18 through 22, it says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their own wickedness. Notice what Paul is saying. They choose to do what is evil. Since what is known about God, since before the beginning of time is known to them. So, what is he saying? Man actively, freely suppresses truth. It's not because God hasn't made himself revealed through nature. He has. Then he goes on, so, for since the creation of the worlds, 
God's invisible qualities, his natural and eternal power, have been clearly seen, being understood for what has been made, so that men are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him nor gave him thanks, but by their thinking became foolish, and their hearts darkened. Notice what verse 24 says. So when we talk about the respecting of free will, man's free will, it says, Therefore God gave them over to the sinful desires of their heart. And I won't read the next verse, a little crass, but you get the general gist. God is giving what man naturally wants. What does man naturally want? He wants to be alienated from God, cut off from God. He wants nothing to do with God's law. Paul goes in, he goes in further after three. We know, everyone knows the Roman road. I'm not going to beat you to death with it. But I think this part of Romans chapter 9 verses through uh, verses 14 and 15 are good. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? By no means. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it is written, there is no one, not one, who is righteous, who understands God. Notice what else he says. None who seek God. All have turned away. They have all become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. Their poison of vipers is their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift, are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery their mark. And they know the way of peso. They have no fear of God within their sight. The natural man is enslaved to sin. And it's not just merely that he's enslaved to sin. He loves sin. He clings to sin. His heart desires sin. And left to his own devices, he will always shoe sin. So then we have to ask the question, how does man, how does this work in light of God's sovereignty? Well, when we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, it speaks that before we were children of God, dead in our sin, Christ made us alive in his grace, and he gives us new life. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 that this is done according to the predetermined plan of God, that he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Now we would go, well, what about man's free choice? What about man's free will in light of God's sovereignty? And I think it is very important to go into the question of then what about man's free will? But we notice even in the Old Testament, when God decrees he's going to give a new, he's going to establish a new, a new covenant. And then it says, <clears throat> this is what the, Lord, the sovereign Lord says, on this day I will cleanse you from all sins. That the less the lesson of land will be cultivated. This land, I'm sorry, I read my bad, I read the wrong one. Verses 20 to 23. There we go. And whatever they went amongst the nations, they profane my name, my holy name, for it is said, These are the Lord's people who had to leave his land. I had concern for my only holy name, which the house of Israel profaned before the nations. Therefore, God says, It is not for your sake, right? O house of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned, which I will show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, I will show my before you through their eyes. What is the point that Ezekiel is making, that God is ultimately making? Man left to his own devices will always choose sin. And God's offering of redemption has nothing to do with us. In fact, we have shown nothing but ingratness and ungratefulness towards the will of God. But out of his own will, out of what he desires to do, he therefore chooses to save us. Then we want to tie up one last little point. When we talk about 
God choosing some and not choosing others. When Porter talks about Romans chapter 8, verses 9, Romans 8, and this is a point I think we need to remember. Paul is not rejecting predestination as saying that God has poured out his love on some and not others. What he is rejecting out of pocket is that somehow that is through our merit, through our good works, through works of the law, that therefore we can merit God's grace. That's not at all what Paul's saying. And then when you read Romans chapter 9, of course, we also go to Romans chapter 8, which both books are just full of understanding the doctrine of predestination. It talks about this regarding Esau and Jacob. In verse 10, not only, but that Rebekah's children had one same, the father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, before they had done good or evil, notice that, before they were born, in order that God's purpose may stand, not by works, but by he who calls. Who's the he? God. She was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it was written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Well, then the accusation comes from the interlocker, well, God's unjust. And then Paul answers them. Shall we say that God is unjust? By no, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy upon whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion upon whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scriptures have said to Pharaoh, I raise you up. Notice what God says, I raise you up, that I might display my power in you, that my name may be known beyond the earth. Therefore, God is mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he will harden who he wishes to harden. Of one of you will say, then why does God blame us? Who can resist our will? But you, O oh man, who are to you to talk back to God? But Paul is not the only person who has this realization. We look in the book of Daniel, after Nebuchadnezzar is snapped out of his, I guess you can say, bout of insanity, and I know I have less than a minute, so I'll make this quick. This is what he says. At the end of that time, Nebuchadnezzar raises his head and his sanity was restored. Then I praise God. I honor and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion will go from generation to generation. All the people that are regarded as nothing. He does as he please with the powers of the heavens and the people of the earth. None can hold back and say to him, you done. Both the Jew and the Gentile can understand the sovereignty of God. And for the Christian, this is good news. For those who rebel, this is bad news. But there's no injustice in God's part. We are free. God is sovereign. Both things coexist. And with that, I yield my time. All right. Thank you so much, Curtis, for that opening statement. And now we are transitioning to the open discussion. And I will not interrupt this 60-minute open discussion unless I hear ad hominems or disrespectful talk, uh, people calling each other out their names or anything like that. But thus far, I do not get the ad impression from you guys that you guys would do anything like that. With that said, I'm going to allow you guys to have the stage. And, uh, yeah, I'll be listening to what you guys have to say. You guys got it. Curtis, do you want to start or do you want me to start? Thanks to you. Okay, so in your opening statement, you talked about how man is judged according to his intention, not God's decree. What does that mean? So when I say that God, so man does not know exhaustively the decree of God. He is judged based on his intention. Things that I kind of want, I wish I could have a little more time to flush out. The point that I was making Isaiah 10 
is that the king of Assyria, in his heart, his intention is he wants to cut off God's people. He says, and God knows his intention, yet within God's decree, he has decree will conquer Judah. They will destroy Judah. But at the same time, why does God judge the king of Assyria? Well, it says the king of Assyria says, well, by my hand, I have cut off this nation. By my hand, I have done this. His intention was not to honor God. His intention was to kill and destroy God's people. Yet that's the precise reason that God judges him. But also we see in, in Genesis 50, when Joseph's brother, we want to kill him, we want to destroy him. That's their intention and they're judged for it. But even in that, Joseph says, but what you meant for evil, God ultimately for good. They're not judged based on God's decree. They're judged on their intention. So that way man's so, intentions what, what, pour out freely, not and they're not judged according to God's ultimate So they're not judged according to God's ultimate will. Are, are you talking about a final judgment that God's ultimate will doesn't play into the final no, judgment at I'm all? Saying, no, I'm talking about uh, they're not judged what God's decree is. They're judged for what they what their intentions are behind their action. Okay, so their intentions, what their intentions are behind their actions is what they're judged by on the last day. It's not what God decides, whether they'll go to salvation or to damnation. Can you flush that out so I make sure I understand you correctly? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so John Calvin teaches predestination we call the eternal decree of God, God's decree, by which he has determined right. in himself what would have to become of every individual of mankind. They are not created with a similar destiny, but eternal life and foreordination to some, and eternal damnation to others. For every man, therefore, being created for one or the other of these ends, we say he is predestined either to life or to death. Are you saying that his that the judgment of God is not by this predestination to hell, heaven, but by his own will? It seems to be, we're, I, I don't understand how those fit together. Right, right. So, and, I, and this is one thing. I think Calvin goes on to explain in later works is what he's saying is yes, before the foundations of the world got elect, we affirm that God had a non-elect. We also affirm that, but mankind is not judged based on the fact that he's not a part of God's elect. He is judged upon the fact that he is a sinner before just God and giving him what he ultimately desires, which again, like in Romans one, it talks about God has revealed himself. He's known. How does man respond? He responds against God. And what he's saying is God is ultimately he desires. And God is giving him over to what he desires. But it's not because his not it has nothing it has I won't say it has nothing to do with selection. He's not judged against God's preordained plan. He's judged by the fact that he ultimately hates and rejects God. And upon that basis, in his intention, he is justly judged. Just like but I'm not judged. Sorry, what are you going to say? Uh, you're good. Go ahead. No. The thought left me. Oh, I'm I, sorry. What were you going to say? I was going to ask, so, but we can't be judged differently than God has already decreed, right? Meaning, okay, again, flush it out so I make sure I'm saying So if God decrees me to damnation, I can't be judged any different than that despite my intentions, no matter what they are. God has already decreed me to damnation. Right? I have to be damned. Is that true? Right, but here, right, but here, here's where I think and I have to flush it out. What I'm also, what Scripture is also saying, though, is your endeavor to serve God. So God is ultimately giving you what your intention has always been. 
versus those of us in Christ, which is our intention was always to be free from God. That's the nature of all mankind. He's instead choosing to have and give us life and changing us from a desire to, to hate God, to love God. But in both cases, we are still a judge in our intentions. For example, as a Christian, um, if I do something good, but with the intention of evil, I'm judged for that. Just like the, the wicked man who desires to do what's evil because it is evil is also judged for his intention. All creatures are judged, not against God's decree. Um, yeah, I, I don't understand how that's, how that's uh, consonant, like how, how that makes sense together. Uh, so we, so we would say primary and secondary causes. But but you as a Christian are judged by the imputed righteousness of Christ, right? Not because of your intentions. Well, no, I'm so still, I'm both, all people. Hmm? I, I was just wondering how you can both be judged in the last day by the imputed righteousness of Christ, as, uh, but also by your own intentions. Would those be antithetical things? No, so so here's, here's where the, the, and I think Christians have, kind of falling off the bandwagon, especially within the Protestant, within Orthodoxy, a little old, just so we're clear, is we as Christians affirm that every word, deed, and action, and thought that we have, and the book of Revelation talks about this, for every idle word and every idle action, we will have to give an account before God. That much is, everybody's going to have to do that. The wicked is like, this is, because we our intentions is to crucify those things and lay them on the feet of God. I mean, on the at the feet of Christ to find peace with God. We are ultimately declared free from sin, as though we never. Whereas the wicked man, his, his idle thoughts, his wicked ways, are he intends to do evil. He wants to do evil. He has no desire to leave that at the feet of Christ, and he will be just for that. And it's not because he's ignorant. The Bible says that God has revealed himself through nature, Romans 1, the law 2, and his conscience 3. And he knows what's right and wrong, but his intentions are to suppress that which is true. So he's justly judged. Just like it, God forbid, if I get in an argument and I curse her, my intention is evil. I will be judged for that. But because I will lay that at the feet of Christ, God will crucify that. But I still have to give an account for when I speak ill or when I do ill or when I think someone so i'm still judging at the end of the day we all are the question is where does that where ultimately are we laying where are we ultimately laying our intentions and will and i'm saying the righteous man would do, do good the righteous no will to do good but both are judged accordingly um but but there seems to be a difference between giving an account of something and being judged or something is there not no, I would say not. I'm judged at work what, what, like I do. For example, you're judged by if, if I at work. So at work for what I do, right? So if I show up on time, if I didn't wear my uniform, I'm judged according to that. That that's mm -hmm. proper judge, right? Um, so it's not, and I give an account for that. So if my boss says, "Well, why were you late? Oh, I overslept. Why aren't you in uniform? I didn't wash my clothes in time." I am being judged rightly because I'm not, I haven't done what's been required of me, but I also have an account of why I haven't done what has been. Both those cases can coexist. Now, case that my boss chooses to have mercy, right, and not punish me, I count 
and he still judged me. And if he decides to take me off the schedule for a week, that's also just. But in both camps, I'm being judged and given account of why I do what's been asked of me to do. Okay. So, um. so, the, so he's right from wrong. And he will have to give an account because he knows right from wrong. <clears throat> so what is it that determines whether someone desires God or not? Is it the decree of God or does that come somewhere from inside themselves? So what we would say is that in where we differ from our, our Methodists and Wesleyan brothers, we would say that regeneration, God making a lot of the heart of men comes first. And then with that comes faith. And, and again, I wish I had a little bit more time because this kind of goes outside of, a little bit outside the parameters, but that's the establishment of the new covenant in, in Ezekiel chapter 36 and Jeremiah chapter 31 is God saying, I will give you a heart of flesh and you will be careful to obey me and my statutes. And so when, God's, man, when man desires to turn to God, it's ultimately God taking out his resistance and giving him a new heart. Now, the Arminian would affirm that as well. We're just disagreeing on which one comes first. They would say you have faith, then you're made alive. I would say you're made alive, then you have faith. We're both agreeing. We're just putting it in different order. Um, they, our desires change when God ultimately changes our heart. But but you would disagree on, on who is ultimately responsible for that. For, for example, if I have faith in Jesus Christ and therefore Correct. I gain salvation through him, then I'm judged actually according to my works, but if God only imputes faith to me, then I'm judged according to God's decree apart from my works. Is that not so? So, okay, maybe I, I want to make sure I understand so we have a clear conversation. Are you saying in all counts we're still judged against God's decree and our intention? Or are you saying in one system it's it's degree versus intention. Maybe I'm not understanding. Well, it, it seems to be the same thing within Calvinism, right? Because if God's decree is that I'm a faithful person, then he'll give me faith and therefore I'll be a faithful person. So these are the same thing that we're judged by, right? Um, but Arminianism uh, holds a different view of judgment, uh, a consistent view in which I'm judged by what I actually do. Uh, so I guess part of my question is why is it just that God would judge me according to his decree of giving me faith or not, when he could have given me faith in the first place. He could have saved me, he could have not saved me. Uh, but but I'm what judgment is what I'm reported according I'm rewarded according to my works, but I'm only I only have these works because God has decided I'll be faithful or not. Does that make sense? Like I how can I be judged for being faithful if God forced me to be unfaithful by the non imputation of his grace? Right. Well, and, and this is where we go again to uh, an proper anthropology of man, which is the, the, the thing is, it's not that man wants to be faithful by his intentions, like left to his own devices. He's always going to choose the suppression of truth in his unrighteousness. So I think this always in, in part, the stepping stone is what do we believe about the will of man? And scripture is over and over and over again saying no one's righteous. No one seeks after God. That's everyone by default. So then the question, how do we become faithful? And that's, again, going back to what God says, it's because of his power and his demonstration that he wants to have mercy upon us because we've done wrong. We, we've gone astray, but it is out of his desire to be good to us that he pulls us in. 
Well, then you go, well, what about the person who never turns? Well, what the Bible says, and I think Romans 1 through all the, well, all of Romans would say is that we are all, one of us is receiving what we do deserve. The other one is receiving what we don't deserve. So the, the evil man can never say he received injustice. He receives justice in its full might because his intentions are evil and left to himself, he would be. Just like if I was left to myself, if God didn't change my life, I would ultimately decide to pursue evil. And yet in both cases, we're still being held for our actions. Point are, are we unfree? Everyone is free. Everyone is free. But in our natural state, we're in bondage to sin. So the, the, I think this all goes back to how free do we actually think man is? I think we have a natural freedom to do what is good and evil in the, in the civil and moral sense. But ultimately, our intentions apart from God are broken and enslaved. And we're judged according to that. Right. So that, that gets kind of to the case that I was making here about the universal salvation of man being so prominent in Scripture. Um, because if, if God desires only a few to be saved, then why does he send the Son into the world that the whole world might be saved? That it's not a propitiation of our sins only, but for the whole world, as we read in First John chapter 2. Well, it seems to me that, that when we say that God has chosen some, but not others, we must limit of necessity his nature and justice, because he is not just to those to whom he is merciful, and he is not merciful to whom those he is just, to, to those to whom he gives justice. So in, in some sense, the Calvinist perspective on mercy and justice is to limit him to be either merciful or just, on the other hand. But he can never be both. By the way, the scripture, what I've been pointing out in this case is, but the scripture records a very different interpretation of God's grace, that it is free to all and that it is of necessity resistible, meaning that God is perfectly just in that he gives justice to all, rewarding us according to our works, saving us from those desires that you're talking about so that we're free to choose him, or according to justice by that which we naturally choose. But it's by the freedom that comes through Christ, the universal salvation, uh, that these things come about. Right. Uh, and here's here's where we have to go. In, and Christians have historically understand at least this part. We can affirm both the mercifulness of God and the justice of God. Those things are not mutually exclusive to one another. Well, I, I and nor are they in the Christ Calvinist sense. OK, nor okay. In the there, Calvinist there, there's sense. A, there's a distinction. Right. How, how are they not? Uh, but it, how are they not contradicting the Calvinist sense? Of go ahead. Right, easy, because we would affirm that God is love, and yet at the same time, we also speak about God's wrath. Those two things can perfectly coexist, and Scripture do speak of them coexisting. So when we read, for example, in Romans 9, God is giving mercy and, and, and grace to his people. He's also giving the evil man what he deserves, which is justice. One of us is getting what we don't deserve. The other person is getting perfectly what he deserves. And in neither case is his mercy abdicated towards the elect. I mean, nor his justice is not abdicated in the case of a, the elect, nor is his mercy abdicated in the in the the damnation of the non-elect. So, for example, uh, I, I don't want to be too crass because I don't want to get this channel shut down. Onan, I think I'm saying his name right. Onan abdicated his moral responsibility in the procreation in everyone else's confines. And God struck him dead, right? 
David failed in his moral responsibility to respect another man's wife, yet God lets him live and establishes a covenant for him. Was God being unjust not to strike David dead? Uh, well, I, I think that David is, is a kind of a different case, right? Because David is freely choosing to turn back to God. Oh God, who's forgiven my sins in the Psalms. So I, I think that, that David is given moral agency, the freedom through Christ to choose either justice or mercy, and he freely chooses the merciful. So because of that freedom of choice, apart from God's sovereign will, God is uh, just in his doing. But I, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true in the Calvinist sense, because God... Well, but wait a second, I, I just want to inter interrupt for a second, though. Onan has responsibility, according to the law, to depreciate his brother's family. He chose not to. David has a moral responsibility, according to the law, not to murder and not to commit adultery. Both men break the law. In one case, immediately after breaking the law, God strikes one dead. The other case, God lets the other one live for a little while longer and establishes a covenant with him. So how is it, in one case, God is merciful and he's seemingly being unjust to Onan. Both men have, both know what God expects. Both men have a moral responsibility. Both men fail in their moral responsibility, right? Yet in one case, God is saying, I'm going to let you live. Not that you're going to get a sin. There will be punishment. But in the other case, he's immediately bringing judgment upon one and not the other. In that sense, God's being merciful and he's just. And in either case, is he abdicating either one? So even if you want to say, Onan could have followed through and done what he was supposed to do, could have done what he was supposed to do and done the right thing. Both men failed. One receives mercy, the other one receives judgment. Is that a God pitting his attributes against one another, or can he perfectly have mercy and justice? Well, uh, David isn't uh, without punishment in that case. It's it's justice and I'm justice. I'm not disagreeing. David, right. But, 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 but you're God saying that he, the life he's... of one and kills the other. Uh-huh, so it's a different punishment. He's just in both cases. Is but, he being but what I'm saying not to one and being merciful to the other. Um, so mercy is extended to both. Certainly, uh, it's about their their individual choices after that mercy is extended. So yeah, it's it's not by his divine decree. It's it's by human choice in those two cases. Yeah, I'm not sure where you guys left off at, but. Me neither. Curtis, do you have any questions for me? I've been asking a lot of you, so. Right. So, um, question that I would say, one question I think um, is really important, and this one I tend to ask it as friends. When we speak about uh, God's mercy upon some and not mercy upon others, would you say that that is inherently unjust, and if so, upon what basis? Because I, I don't want to accuse uh, you, because everyone has different views. Yeah, as we as we read in Scripture, His mercy is universal; it's extended to all people. Um, it, the question is whether we, as individuals made free through the atonement of Christ, will claim that mercy. And so, uh, because it's extended to all individuals, it's not unjust; it's freely extended to everyone in the same way and through all time. So uh, that's uh, it's not unjust because it's freely extended. Yeah. Right, so when you say 
universally would you say that it's universally applicable to all or universally open to all? Uh, I'm I'm not sure what the difference would be. Can you clarify um, what you mean okay, by that? Okay, so um, so if I host a dinner party uh, for my sister's 16th birthday, and mm -hmm. I I say everyone in our neighborhood is invited, right? There's a universal universal offer, um, right? And that applies to everyone in our neighborhood. So therefore. In the universal invitation, the universal application, no one's left out. Versus when we would say there's universal. When I say application, I mean that all everyone receives the act of mercy of God. Every God's mercy applied to their life, salvifically. Uh, well, I think we have very different definitions of salvific. Uh, what what that particularly means? Um, so, right. for example, uh, Romans uh, clearly points out in chapter five that God's uh, suffering is universal. All will be saved from death. All will be extended uh, covenantal relationship um, that we can enter into to be freed from our sins if we uh, do not yield ourselves as members to sin, for example. So it, it's universal in some sense as, a, as it's extended to all people and it will save all people from death. But it's not universal in the other sense in that all people will equally claim access to his grace. Right, so then if it's applicable, then how, therefore, can we, therefore, reject it if it's universally applicable? Because we don't claim it. But it's already applied to us, correct? Right. Um, like, if, like the resurrection if, is, is applied to us. The grace is, is not a so, single, there's not one single blessing that comes from grace. Justification and resurrection are, are different ideas, and they come from different graces. A universal resurrection, a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. Save us from the fall of Adam. That's universally applicable, but we aren't universally justified by our sins, from our sins. Okay. From so them. then, so then, therefore, God cannot, therefore, consistently, universally applicable. God cannot do what? So, the, so by that extension of logic, the mercy of God is not universally applicable. Does not be. Of course, it's universally applicable. It's not universally seized. Okay, so then, okay, so... Not universally utilized. Oh, so let me ask, look, perhaps there's a better question. Um, if you had a parking ticket for $100 and I pay it, and the, uh -huh. the debt is paid, even mm -hmm. if you say I didn't want you to pay it, it's still paid. We would both agree to that, correct? Sure. Okay, so if Christ's blood and resurrection is therefore paid to all people's account, Mm -hmm. then therefore all people logically are at peace with God, correct? No, that's not correct. So how, okay, so then how can there be so applicable tone that everyone is for God? Read in Romans chapter 5, the first 11 verses is that we have peace with, with the Father because of what the Son has done, because the Son absorbs the wrath of God by his sinners Christ died for us if you're saying that is true for all of mankind everyone who have voiced the wrath of God through Christ has peace with God and yet you're saying over here everyone Christ has died for all every blessing in the resurrection but not all have how to saying uh, it's not sorry. limited in intention but also in scope which I think 
consistent when reading Revive. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, you, you keep cutting up, so I'm going to try to answer as best I can, but if I miss it, if I miss a particular point or analogy that you've given, um, be sure to correct me because I, I, I can hear every second or third word. So is, is the question, um, how is God's grace universal if not all people accept it, assuming that Romans 5, 1 through 10 is written to all people? Yes. Okay, well, Romans 5, 1 through 10 is written to covenant people, particularly people that Paul is going to come visit. The people receiving his letters are, are not just random people on the streets. And therefore, he has a particular audience in mind when he's writing to these people. They are covenant. They are clean through Christ. They've accepted his atonement, and therefore they're listening to the apostles under whose doctrine they stand. It is, it is not simply to say that all people have universally accepted the atonement of Jesus Christ. That's, I think that's, that's far from his intention in chapter 5. Right, so then what do you do, for example, so I brought up an earlier point, so just give me a second. Um, so, in, for example, when you spoke of John chapter 3 and talks about the cosmos, which is something I think a Calvinist should do a better job of preaching through sometime. But it says, for God so is one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Did not send his son into the world for the nation, but to save the world. But it does say, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever does not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the, in the name of God's one and only son. And this is the verdict. Life has come into their, their wickedness more than they love. Do, I'm sorry. Men love their wickedness more than the light because the light disposes their their wicked everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for the fear that he spose but whoever lives into the light so that they may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through through god jesus uh, so i guess for me when jesus is speaking of salvation versus condemnation in god's intention sending his son into the world is not condemnation well, why? The world's already condemned by sin. But he says, whoever does not believe is currently condemned. Condemned. But then he goes on to say, but men will never come to the light that exposes their darkness. But he's saying, those who believe will have life. So for me, if we're going to say that the resurrection of Christ is connected to the atonement, and the atonement is universal, what Christ is saying is, only those who believe that salvation, those who reject him, receive condemnation. Well, how can Jesus preach condemnation if salvation is going to be universally applicable? Or uh, mercy because it's universally applicable. I, those two things can't exist, though. I, I'm not sure how... Well, I, 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 I thought the, the distinction between um, like it's universally given and not universally accepted was was fairly clear, right? What I, I'm confused why why that particular point wasn't answered already. Because I think you're trying to say that it's hinged upon us receiving it, and I'm going well. Then you've just argued yourself into the corner of the atonement being limited tension and scope, which is the Calvinistic perspective anyway. So man uh, cannot be judged for sin that's paid for. Make God unjust. He can be judged. He can pay for sin that he, he had for. That is justice. So I guess for me, uh, if, if 
we're going to say that paid just to judges, would he not? Uh, no, so it's universal. Uh, so the atonement of Christ is universal in its extension and its offer to mankind. It is not universal in its application, which is different than the Calvinist belief of a of a restricted atonement who is given only to the elect. My belief is that the atonement is offered freely offered to all mankind, and therefore all mankind is made free from sin. So but I, I think that. I, speak of the, but the Bible doesn't speak of man being freed from sin. We have passage after passage, even after the death of Christ, saying that man is in a state of slavery to sin. He does not seek to do good. So then the natural we, man is the natural man is which, in the state of slavery to sin, which is the man before Christ comes to atone for our sins. Yeah, He's, he right. is without okay, he so would be in a state of slavery to sin. But after he came, we are not really the natural man. Uh, so are all people not the natural man? As a current uh, this. Uh, yes, all people are not the natural man as you're referring to him, that, that they're all slaves to sin. Um, right. Some people are slaves to sin, but they've freely chosen that of themselves. Which, according to Scripture, that is what they naturally desire, is it not? If they were only the natural man, that would be what they naturally desire. But uh, Christ came to atone for right. the sins and free all mankind from this desire but, only. Therefore, God draws not... all and so does sin. Right. But I, I think me and you have had discussions with unbelievers, a friend of mine, I won't say his name because he may be watching, that I love dearly. When I preach to him about Christ and the resurrection, he has no desire to serve God. And I'm saying, but that's the natural state. The unregenerate man has no desire to follow God. And Christ is, is saying this, even as he knows he's going to be offering himself up. So when you say that men are free from sin, I'm, and I don't, I don't want to sound condescending. I don't want that to be my attitude or disposition. Mm -hmm. All around the world and see that the natural man is still enslaved to sin, and that's we're talking about the natural man in a different way, right? No, Our definition I'm talking about natural man in a completely different. I'm saying the man, mankind, in his when he is born and he grows up, and also women, since it's 2023, ain't trying to get nobody mm -hmm. canceled. All of mankind is in a state of sin will choose sin, has no desire to serve God, after God frees our right. heart. Right, through so we his, have a very different Through his grace. Of, right, so we have a different understanding of, of the natural man. I believe that the natural man is the condition that we would be in if Christ didn't come. And therefore, Christ coming and his atonement on the cross freed us from the natural man and made us free to freely choose, which means that our desires are ultimately what determine whether we desire God or not, our, our internal freedom, whether we accept the invitation of Christ or of sin. What you're arguing is something different. You're, you're arguing that all people, regardless of the atonement of Christ, are slaves to sin, which is not my position. So we're talking about the natural man in a different way from one another, I believe. But Jesus says himself that he who sins is a slave to sin. Paul also says this. He sin seeks after God. Both of these uh -huh. men are knowing. So Paul's writing Romans' resurrection of Christ. And he's saying, new God still chose to reject him. God now, they still choose to reject God is saying, turn to me. And they're saying no. And Paul is saying, and because of this, this is the natural state of man. Man, prior to Christ... You are correct to say prior to Christ, the natural man prior to Christ. I'm saying because of the regenerative power of the Holy Spirit, those of us in Christ desire to abandon sin. But I'm saying the man who's not in a state of regeneration has no desire to follow God. Just make that plain.
both in the Old right. and the New Testament. So what I'm saying is not everybody's in a state of grace before. There are those of us who are in God's grace and those of us who are not in God's grace. Right. Your your version of not the natural man is the regenerative man, and mine is all mankind after Christ comes. So we're, we're talking about different different things fundamentally. But I mean, even the ultimate long years after Christ has come, when, for example, when he speaks of false teachers, well, they're just good people who've just lost their way. He's just like, no, they're, they're evil and they're wicked and they, they bring destruction upon themselves. He's not saying only they return, things will be better for them. Even Peter talks about this. He talks about those who crucified our Christ, those of us who oppose. He even, I want to say it's in First John where he says, those who preach evil, if you welcome them into your home, you participate in the evil that they So for me, the, the New Testament doesn't seem to reject the idea that the natural man still exists. What it does offer is saying there is a cure for the natural man in faith and regeneration through the power of the Holy Spirit and faith of Christ. So when you say that man's estate changed, we've been offered a better estate, but our natural estate is still enslaved to sin. And the Bible makes that so clear years after the resurrection of Christ. Nothing about that has changed. I'm not sure how that applies to my particular statement or theology. It doesn't seem to. So, um, right. To, so, for example, in Romans, Romans chapter 8, Paul says, Therefore, there's no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say for everybody. No condemnation for those of us in him. Those who are not in the wrath of God. Why? Because the wrath of God is upon them for their wickedness. You understand that that my reading of, of Romans, as I've explained in my opening part, is uh, is in terms of the Mishnaic tradition of the Jews, right? That that this has to do with the Jewish belief and predestination that he's condemning. I, I don't think that that's. But I mean, he, even so, the Old Testament spoke of God's predestination that He would bring the Jew, the Gentiles into His fold and make elect. So what Paul is rejecting is not. Is a in in a sense he's reprimanding them for forgetting what God is. God since says his plan all along has been able to to bring all people of all tribes and people unto himself. Paul says Paul Peter has the mission of doing that for the Jew. I've been given of that doing to the mission to the Gentile, but this is still God's plan. He's not rejecting predestination as we understand. He's saying. But do not forget, this is all people everywhere. But here's the other thing. He still preached a nation upon the natural man. Because he said, natural man, apart from Christ, has no desire to serve God. Zero desire to serve God. And left to his own devices will always suppress righteousness. So when I'm saying it makes no sense to write about the state of the man, if the natural man's state is better after the resurrection of Christ, the death of Christ, than it was before the death and burial and the resurrection of Christ. They still does. They don't speak of the natural man glowingly. They still say he's it's, enslaved it, to sin. It's not after or before. It's in consequence of. So the grace of Christ is extended even to those who were born before, and therefore what we're talking about is is not a timeline question after or before Christ. It's simply um, that Christ gave his life for all of us, and therefore we're all saved. Uh, we're all um, saved from death, and we're all extended grace. 
Um, so I, I don't understand the before after so, distinction. Natural man, right, natural so, man is so if he had not died, not after he had not died. I mean, but even then, the natural man is to his devices still will choose evil. I think the, I think the yeah. distinction needs to right, be right. But we're not the regardless. natural man because we're no, not the no. natural man because Christ extends his mercy to all. No, no. For the Christian man, he he's no longer. It is no. This is no longer he. That's I your reading, right? Your practicing reading your interpretation but, of the natural man in the scripture. But okay, right. here's the thing, though. When you say Romans is written in particular, who has died with Christ and risen with Christ? Is it all mankind, or is Paul speaking about the church? Who died with Christ and is risen in Christ? Are you talking about Romans five verse eighteen? Um, that in Romans chapter six, where he says. We have been baptized with Christ, so I'm saying, who's yeah. the we been baptized with Christ? Is it universally the world, or is it the church that he's speaking of? Well, those are different concepts, right? Um, so we're we're baptized into Christ when we receive the actual ordinance of baptism. We're made new people in Christ. We receive His grace, and yet His grace is still resistible, as Romans six will point out. Um, but I, I, I'm but not if, really sure. If what, it's only if it's only People know that we're made the new man, and not everyone has received them, and naturally not every person's a new man. Mm -hmm. Wouldn't that follow? Yeah, so so I, I think we're... Um, oh, okay, so I, I see the confusion, I, I think, because you're talking about uh, the new man as someone after they've been baptized, and I'm speaking of the, the natural man uh, as if Christ hadn't come. But baptism and the coming of Christ are not the same thing. Right, right, so but we, I'm we saying even even in the Old Testament, Old Testament, the Bible speaks of those God. They have no desire to serve God. That man's natural inclination is to do is evil, and this is in lieu of them knowing that the Messiah is coming. So, so then, why is the New Testament similar language for the unregenerate man that the Old Testament does? Because both Testaments speak about the natural man apart from Christ is evil and wicked. He desires nothing but wickedness. And nothing in the New Testament says, well, after Christ, we can therefore choose to be good people. All mankind is slave to sin. sin. They love to sin. They cling to sin. Those of us who have been forgiven by Christ, we put them to death. As John Owen, the great Puritan, says, we seek to kill sin, lest it would kill us. The next have a desire, though. That's what the New Testament is saying. And you're saying, but after Christ, I'm saying even after the resurrection of Christ, it still condemns the natural. The natural man is no is not in a new state of neutrality. He's in a state of act of hostility against God. He doesn't want God. What to do is make uh, him alive. And then when you read because the of Revelation, Christ. though, it, well, those of us who have faith in Christ, we are made alive. And those of us in Christ, we receive freedom from the wrath of God. Those without Christ. Receive them. They receive their penalty. According to the New Testament, God has done so, so that He may show mercy to us and judgment on us. And in, and then Paul answers his own question. But there's no injustice on God's behalf on either accord. I receive something I don't deserve. Wicked man receives something he does deserve. God's not being in base. So I think this all goes back to what do we think about the natural man? And the natural man is not a person in a state of neutrality. 
he's in one at enmity with God, and left to his own devices will always be at enmity with God. Cuts about it. Uh, good thing that the extension of grace, as we've shown, is universal. Um, only so for that, those that's... in Christ Jesus. Only for those in Christ no. Jesus. Because when you read Revel when you read Revelation, the Bible says those in Hades they will be thrown into a lake of fire. They will have wished they were never born at all. So I'm saying... We've already distinguished these two points fairly clearly. The, the but, I, but I mean... But the Bible, the Bible says grace, grace only goes to those in Christ. Doesn't go to the, it doesn't go to those without Christ. If any man said he have an advocate in Christ Jesus... And who died not only for our sins, speaking to the believers, but also for the sins of the whole world. So, no, the New Testament does not record um, simply that, that uh, yeah, it records a universal extension of grace. And, and I think we're, we continue to confuse extension with acceptance of grace. Um, so I, I, that was the whole part of my first uh, paragraph that I was reading, or the, the first part of my debate case. Right, so then... Would you say that all men currently have an advocate with the Son? Yes, all mankind do have an advocate with the Son if we accept his advocation. So it's our decision to accept or deny. If we reject it, then we don't have a Son. Uh, we don't. We certainly don't receive the blessings of His atonement, the fullness of His grace. Yeah. But I'm saying, if we reject him, we have your. If we reject him, what? If we reject his advocacy, we is what you're saying. Sorry, you, you keep cutting. Hey, out. hey Curtis, you're advocacy. breaking it. Yeah. You're breaking up pretty bad. I'm not sure if the internet connection, but well, probably is the internet connection. But um, you're breaking up pretty bad. Can you repeat that question one more time? Also, guys, can we start? I know we're sort of talking about the condition of man and you know how that affects. The idea of, pre uh, of, of our response to Christ and things like that. Uh, let's sort of narrow that down. Let's sort of bring that to the resolution of predestination, how all that formulates together. Right. right, right. So, can you hear me better now? Yeah, yes. I can hear you. Slightly. I can hear you now. Yep. Okay. Okay, maybe it's my fan. I guess I'm trying to get some air circulating. Um, here, here's where I think Bull's head shoot, though. Ultimately, though, God is showing, before the foundations of the world, He is showing grace upon His people. And what the Bible says is that He brings this out, out of, He worketh all these things out of the counsel of His own will. So, I, I would say, is this man is naturally an enemy, animosity with God. God, out of His own character and will and desire, chooses to regenerate our heart, but not us, but so that He, the world may. And that for the unregenerate man left to his own devices, God is giving him justly what he deserves. So then ultimately, God is working out the salvation of his elect, which he said he will achieve. And he does that in spite of us. And so that's why I keep going back to when you read the Old Testament and the New Testament is saying this is God's work. That's exactly right. It's not our work. It's God's work. That he bring election of his saints, and that he will lose none of them. This is something that Christ explicitly teaches. Both, and this is this is coming from Lame Testament. So I guess I, I guess that's why I would love to hedge my bets some. 
Uh, yeah, I, I'm just not sure that that position really um, uh, attacks the theology I'm holding. I, I'm a little confused as to, to why. Uh, I mean, I, I think I've explained the difference between uh, man if Christ had never come and if he had come, the condition of man on both sides. So I, I think it's just assuming a definition of the natural man uh, that leads to this definition of predestination uh, being scriptural. Um, I, I think, again, the, the contrast is that scriptures plainly talk about God's universal application of grace, his universal desire for our salvation. Um, so I, I'm not really sure uh, where we're going with that. Um, one thing I, I am so curious about... I, uh, one thing I would love to ask, though, so like in Romans 9 where he talks about vessels of destruction, for example, mm-hmm. is he pouring out his mercy as well? Is he pouring out his mercy? Absolutely, but those people reject his mercy. Because they reject it, or is it to demonstrate his power in an election? Um, it, well, not his election, because his election is conditional, as we see in the 11th chapter and the 22nd verse, that we have to continue in his grace, otherwise we will not receive his election. Um, but, but specifically, the passage that you're talking about is, is really interesting. Um, the passage refers to uh, a potter who makes pots and, and will eventually right. put them in the kiln. Some will break and some will not break. Um, for Israel, of course, is tried in the furnace of affliction. Now, what's the difference between uh, a pot that breaks and doesn't break? Well, it's the internal moisture of the pot. It's, it's the internal character that causes either the break or not to break. Now, of course, God in, is, is attributed mercy and justice in these things. He's given glory only in our system because he is both universally just and universally merciful because he's given them grace and mercy and an invitation to come and they have not accepted it so he preserves the agency of man and is made perfectly just uh, in the extension of this mercy right i i want to really emphasize this i think this is something i think we have to like really draw itself out but it says In verse 11, though, it says, Yet before the twins were born, and added its purpose. So notice what Paul says, God's purpose, election. Not our mm-hmm. purpose, but his purpose, not by works, but by him who calls. So notice what Paul says. This is God's plan to show his power in election and his purpose, right? Then it says, in, yeah. it d- No, but here's the thing. It says, it does not therefore depend on man's desire or effort but upon God's mercy Paul is saying God is demonstrating his power and election for his purpose and for his calling what is his plan his purpose and his calling to Jesus so you ask the question in verses 22 to 24 and it says what if God choosing to show his wrath and make his power known bore with great patience the objects of his wrath notice what he says prepared for destruction what if he did this to make the riches of his grace known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory even us called not only from the jews but notice what he says also from the gentiles and then he calls hosea as he says in hosea i will call them who are not my people my people and i will love her who is not love paul is not shying away and predestination God's purpose and power in election, his plan, his calling, his vessels of wrath is prepared for glory. I mean for destruction. 
his vessels, yeah. of, he has prepared for glory. So, and he says, but it's not upon our will or effort. So I'm trying to say, Paul is not, sh is not shirking away. And then even in the question of, is God being unjust? He's saying God can do with his clay as he pleases. And we have no right to question him. Both Would for the Jew, been chiefly, and, and then secondly for the Gentile. I'm sorry, what were you going to say? So, well, really quick to clarify that, that's, um, of course, speaking specifically about the fact that Jews can be saved through Christ. Again, th this is the whole purpose of Romans, is to discount this Mishnaic tradition of the Jews. Um, so, so in context, that means something very different than what it means uh, simply reading chapters 8 and 9 on their own with Calvin's ideas in the background. In context, it, so it specifically speaks of God's ability to extend mercy to the Gentiles, not simply the Jews. It's not speaking right. of, of election, ultimately, um, apart from right. this tradition. But he does use, he says, in order to demonstrate God's power. And so he's emphasizing, the sovereign, he's emphasizing the sovereignty of God in election. So not the way that Calvin wrote that about it. How do we know what? You, so not the way that Calvin wrote it. I didn't quote Constitute. I just quoted the scriptures. And it says... God does this apart from human effort or his power for his purpose Correct. and his calling. All of election, to hold a second. No, he's all and purpose of calling is centered around what God is desiring to do out of his own will. Nothing about us. Correct. He wants to extend his mercy to the Gentiles out of his own will. That's correct. Yes. And some he does and some he does not. That's no, what the Bible, that's, that's what, not. Yes. It says we've given nine citations, but that's not true. But it says the scriptures clearly say, "Prepare for destruction, objects mm -hmm. of mercy, prepare for glory." I'm saying the right. Bible says there are some vessels prepared for destruction, some prepared for mercy, and then he connects the idea of God's calling and power. How do we get around that? How do we sum that? Uh, we don't need to get around it. We so then, you then in order to consistent text is saying that God's power and purpose and election is his power alone connected from us correct uh, in extending his grace to the Gentiles yes no is it is he didn't That's say the he, he's also talking but he's also talking about Jacob and Esau and he's saying vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath he doesn't specify though he's saying God's purpose and election so that's what I'm saying because, God, because Esau gives away his birthright just as Israel did. And therefore God is not unjust to extend his mercy to the Gentiles, just as he was not unjust to extend it to Jacob, who was called Israel. Right. So, but the verse Israel, also says, that, though, it, also, it also says, though, it has nothing to do with what they did. It says before they had chosen to do good or evil, in order God that God's purpose, purpose and election predestined, mm -hmm. that's what the text, in order that his power and purpose and election might stand. He's saying before Esau sold and before Jacob deceived, had already decided Jacob would be my my thing. God God's not connecting, and he also prepared one before the other. That's what the scriptures because one accepted Christ and the other did. That's the preparation. And I think this is also important. I think when he also notes this down, God's for knowledge connected from his purpose planning and election so to disconnect his foreknowledge from election 
and, and I want to, hopefully this does not sound condescending. I really, really hope it doesn't. To disconnect God's foreknowledge from election and salvation is would be silly because the Bible doesn't divorce those two things. Oh, I'm sure it does, yeah. No, it doesn't. Because it says those he, and this is where he says in Romans 8, those he foreknew, he also therefore predestined. So God's foreknowledge is interpredestinational. No matter what we do with that. Uh, yeah, so God, uh, those whom God foreknew, he also did predestine. Meaning that right. those, not, th those who are outside of the nation of Israel specifically can receive God's grace. Yeah, because but God is that, what, is, is, that, is that what the text is that what the text says though? Yes, that's what I've been proving this this entire time. That was the so point Romans the so so Romans eight so Romans eight is speaking you're talking about the Jews and the Gentiles. That's in connection to Romans eight. Yeah, it's the whole sermon. That's why in every single chapter up until Romans chapter nine, he points to the fact that it's not just the Jews that are saved, but the Gentiles only. It's why Paul, who is a Pharisee is pointing to this right. Pharisaic tradition held in the Mishnah. Right. So that's that's what he's right. talking about, is, is the difference between Jews and Gentiles and that God's grace is extended to both. A universal and pre, salvation. And, and predestination and election. Uh, yes, conditionally, so, as we've shown from the text. So why does it say that it has nothing to do with human will or effort, but upon God's purpose and plan? Uh, because... Uh, whether we want to or not, God's will is extended to all mankind, not just Israel. But that's not what the text says. It says before yeah. his purpose, no, it says he will show mercy upon whom he will show mercy. He will show grace upon whom he says grace. It's intimately disconnected, though, from our will or effort. Mm -hmm. So God right, so, showed mercy to Jacob. He doesn't show mercy to Esau. Right? right. God had purpose to show his power. That's what the I'm not reading anything out of Calvin's Institute. I'm reading what the scripture is saying. In order that God's purpose and Right. I mean, You're reading the, I mean the, the scripture, but no, the scripture okay. clearly says in order that God's purpose in election might stand. So I'm right. saying God has a plan in election that includes vessels of wrath, of mercy, one for destruction uh -huh. and one for glory. That is stands to all of his elect. Yes. And it is stands to only his elect. Does not extend to the non-elect. Doesn't say that. Doesn't say that. Again, uh, again, that's the so uh, the the point of the nine scriptural citations we gave that says that God's mercy is extended to all. His salvation is for all. He is the propitiator for all. Uh, Christ laid upon him the sins of us all. Isaiah fifty six fifty three six. So uh, again, it, it is if we take the scripture as a whole and a universal extension of mercy, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, mean, I, I don't. When you say, I think okay. So maybe maybe we should we should kind of linchpin here. I don't disagree that God has mercy on the non elect. God gives them mercy by not destroying them in their sin. So and I want to but clarify this. God God. This because God puts breath in Richard Dawkins' lungs, the same lungs that he uses to do. I believe God has mercy on Richard Dawkins, just like I believe he has mercy on John MacArthur. Men receive mercy. I'm and every verse ultimately, the though, is not everyone not the receives so says not, that. Not the I'm, I'm saying, Jesus says, though, not everyone will receive salvation. There are those kinds of I agree. 
I agree, but that's according to their so, own will, apart from the salvation of God, uh, apart from the statement of God that they won't do it. So then why is it then we can only come if God trolls us? Uh, because God giving Christ on the cross made us free. And therefore we are drawn both by sin in the natural man and by Christ in his giving of the Son on the cross. So therefore right, we're the pulled by all and we're made free. Right, but the Bible does say, though, that the natural man does not understand those, the spiritual things, that he's been blinded by the, by the... And I don't want to get into the total depravity, but I think that has a linchpin in this question, though. The Bible speaks over and over and over again, unless God changes us, we will never come. And Jesus says, though, the reason you do not come is because the Father has not come. And, oh, and I this think is why he says, do, he says, do not be confused. And can the Father first draws him. So what I'm saying is, mm -hmm. the reason that unregenerate man can't come is because, at least in part, the Father drawn him. Those are Jesus's own words. And then he goes on to say, and those who have been drawn will listen to the prophets, will receive the Messiah, will lift them up on the last day. Those who don't have that. What are they, they they're going to do? They're going to do what their father tells them. And Jesus says in, in, in John chapter 8, you do as your father has done. And he's been a liar and a murderer since the beginning. So, so God, Christ at least, seems to have a view of condemnation of drawing and man's status in the context of God's election and plan and purpose. I, I think that that's mostly been responded to. Um, I, I think that you, you brought up a new scripture, uh, John chapter 6, uh, verse 44, I believe, uh, which talks about God drawing man. But again, this is accomplished in the work of Christ, that all mankind are drawn, as we've shown. So, uh, yeah, I, I think that we've, we've all men, fairly... All men have been, been called to repentance. That much I am going to agree with you on. All men have been called to repentance and turned to Christ. Not all men are in Christ. There are men outside of Christ. Uh, their devices and you keep saying you keep saying no and I'm saying but that's not what the Bible says it keeps it specifies the just and the wicked and it separates those two even after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ it's saying the wicked man is a man who pursues evil he will not inherit the kingdom of God and if you pursue these things without turning to Christ you're you counted amongst the wicked and you will be destruction and that's when Jesus talks about on that final day, I will separate the goat. And who are the goats? Those who want no part of the eternal life of Christ. So what I'm saying is the Bible keeps segregating the wicked from the righteous, and it doesn't seem to keep, it doesn't seem to intermingle in the idea that everyone is in peace with God. The wicked man on the day of judgment, according to Revelation, will find himself at God, and thrown into the pit of hell, has no end. That's not a, the wicked, the good thing about those of us in Christ, we have been predestined a purpose of Christ. That's what Paul says in Ephesians 1, and he works these things out according to the counsel of his own will. So they, um, God's well, ultimate will will be accomplished. Accomplished. Um, well, I, I think that those, those ideas have already been fairly addressed. I, I don't think that they really take into account um, the framework that I've offered here because um, we keep confusing right. the end of man with his natural uh, state and desire and those things are just not confusable 
Um, and so I, I think that the framework offers the argument. <laughs> I agree because the Bible tells us what the natural man is. He's an enemy of God. He's an enemy mm -hmm. of God. Currently, well, now, I, even I, now. I, yeah, I couldn't agree more that if that the natural man referring to the man who is not pulled by Christ, which happened to all mankind on the cross, is absolutely still an enemy to God. But all mankind are still pulled and are still given agency and are still given choice to choose whether we'll follow him or not. I couldn't agree more with you. Um, but, here's on the, that. but here's the thing. But here's the thing, though. The Bible does speak, though, that God over to them themselves. And what is their what is their natural desire? And Romans one tells us they don't thank God, they don't thank Him for His blessings. Instead, they worship creatures. They worship creation. The Bible says, "And God ultimately over to whip their hearts desire, lets them destroy themselves." And, and I, I know it's crass again because you know I, I don't know who's watching. I don't know if kids are watching, but we see the diatribe then becomes man doesn't just become foolish. He does abominable things with his body. And again, you can read it for yourself, folks. Why is that? Because they didn't thank God to. And God ultimately gives man what he wants. Romans 1 and 2 and 3 is talking about the natural state of man. Guys, Paul is after Christ. And he's saying, and guess what? It's not that they don't know the truth. It's that they actively suppress the truth and their unrighteousness. Guess what? And they'll be judged for that. Oh, All right, uh, Porter. Did you want to respond to that, and then we'll close it out after that? I'll just closing statements if you want. All right, all right, all right, guys. Thank you for the lively conversation, and uh, I think it turned out very well. Uh, many people in the live chat seem to be enjoying it as well, um, and I appreciate that. I appreciate you guys uh, being respectful of each other. Definitely appreciate it. All right, so now we're going to transition to our closing remarks. It'll be five-minute closings, and then we have 30-minute Q&A. So everyone in the chat, uh, make sure you guys get those questions in, and we'll jump into the Q&A after the closings. That said, Curtis, you're up first for your five-minute closing, and I will start your time as soon as you begin to speak. Yeah, I'm do a little bit of reading and then try to offer some commentary in between. Um, and, and this is from Ephesians chapter 1. We're in the mixed crowd in, in Ephesus. And we'll start in verse 4. For he chose us to be in him the creation of the and blameless in his sight. Of he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Christ Jesus and according with his will and grace to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin, the riches of God's grace that have been lavished upon us with all wisdom and understanding. And then in verses 11, in him we were also chosen, having been according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we were the first hope in Christ, maybe the, for the praise of his glory, and you were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth in the creation, having believed you were marked in him with the seal of the promise, who is the depositor and executor of your inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's to the prayer. Simply put, folks, um, is we, God's elect, his chosen, chosen before the foundations of the world, we were prepared. 
compare nations of the world to be placed in Christ Jesus. This is the state of God's elect. Similarly, those who reject God do not have God, and their inheritance is not in God. But he has purposely chosen his elect, purposely set them out. He has purposely set forth a plan so that they may be saved. And he works out, the Bible says, I think all things according to the will of his purpose. And part of reading Daniel chapter 4 as well, as we get this from a pagan perspective as well, when he comes out of his bout of insanity, and he says, I worship the true and high God, for he sits upon the heavens and the earth and does as he pleases. The inhabitants of the earth are like nothing to him. That is, to, it is not to say that mankind has a worthless estate before God. We are truly loved by God as his creation. It is to say that God has a plan, a purpose, a will, and he demonstrates that in election and predestined his saints, and it has nothing to do with our will, our power, our effort, our agency. Also, as I read in Ezekiel chapter 36, God's desire to regenerate his people and establish a new covenant isn't because they've been holy God. Quite to the contrary, they have profaned God, they hated God, they destroyed God's people, they destroyed God's law, but because he is and he has shown love and kindness, he is the salvation covenant for his namesake, for his glory. All throughout the Old and New Testament, what do we see? God's election and salvation of his people have nothing to do with them, and this is me included. Ungrateful, we are marked in spiritual amnesia, but because God loves us, a plan and purpose for our life predestined us for glory. And again, this is good news for the Christian. Again, Romans chapter 8, verses 28. We know that all things work out for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. What does this mean? It means that the good and the bad are all working out for God's God's plan, his goodness. Also in Job chapter 2, verse 10, when Job's wife says, you should curse God and die, what does Job say? He says, should we not only accept the good that comes from the bad, and he did not curse God in all his days. All throughout the Old and New Testament, what do the people of God do? They trust that God has a plan, which he has revealed, that he will carry out his plan, that he has a good plan for all of his people. He has predestined it, he has decreed it, and he will work it out out of the counsel of his own will. And out of that, we can trust God to do what is right, because he has said so. And we've seen a consistent track record of him bringing to pass everything he desires and wills, for no man can stop his hand. We recognize this again in the psalm God's people. We recognize this with the pagan of King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. No one can stop his hand. He will accomplish all that he desires, works out all things out of the wisdom and justice. And with that, I conclude my time. All right, thank you so much for that closing. All right, Porter, you're up for your five-minute closing, and I will start your yeah. time as soon as you begin to speak. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, I think one of the, the most important things today is to go back to what we originally argued. Was Curtis able to show that grace is given only to some? Or was he able to explain away the many scriptures that talk about the universality of God's atonement and his grace? The answer is no. Largely, these scriptures are not even engaged with 
right? Did he explain away sufficiently John chapter 3, uh, Isaiah chapter 53? Did he show what these mean in context? Did he show that these scriptures talking about the election of God to all mankind are really about simply the elect? I, I don't believe he has met that standard today. And for that reason alone, I think he should lose. Uh, I think you should find the debate in my favor. I know we don't actually vote in this, so it's just a uh, old habit, I guess. Um, the second one is: Did God, did Curtis show that God's will is ultimately irresistible? And I think that the answer again is no. He did not. Instead, we conflated some categories uh, between the natural man without Christ and the man after Christ, and and so on. I don't believe that he did this in explaining um, how it was that some people are saved and others not when God clearly desires the, the destruction of no man, but the salvation of all. Um, did he explain how God's will was resistible on the walls of Jerusalem? I don't believe he did. Um, did he explain, for example, um, how it is that God chose us? How, why my, my theory about entering into a loving relationship with God is, is incorrect? I believe that he fell short. Most of all, he fell short of, I think, arguing um, how Romans chapter 8 and 9 talk about predestination being ascended to all when uh, the context of the verse, um, or sorry, I, I, I think he, he did not show that the book of Romans clearly taught um, his doctrine of predestination. Um, I think we saw um, a lot of skipping of verses, a lot of cherry picking here and there, a lot of assuming that God's grace was not extended or one thing came in front of the other. I don't believe that he attacked adequately any of my points about why Calvinist predestination is, is incorrect. Um, additional to that, I think that we've seen a God in this debate that is not the God of Scripture. When we read the Scripture all in all, we do not see a partially merciful, partially just God who gives some his grace and withholds it from others. St. Anselm once said that God is that being which no greater can be imagined. And in some sense, that means that he must extend both grace and mercy to all mankind, not simply the elect. Um, I, I think that we've seen a God that uh, predestines men uh, to act in a specific way. And therefore, we lower the God of, of creation who makes free men. For surely a free being is greater than that being which is enslaved to his nature or to God's predestination. Um, surely, I, I, many of the remarks in the closing statement were, were not particularly relevant. Of course, I believe that good and bad things will happen, that God is ultimately responsible for both, and that grace is given to all in the form of breath and resurrection and all sorts of things. I, I do not believe my case was adequately addressed today, and for that reason, I, I think that we should conclude the debate in my favor. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you both once again for participating in this debate. So that concludes the debate portion of it. And now we're going to jump into our Q&A here. And let me get this clock off the screen. And so this will be a 30 minute Q&A. Uh, make sure that uh, you guys understand not to talk over each other. The debating part of the debate or the, the crossing uh, commentary of the debate has passed already. So this will be straight up. You both will get one minute each to interact with the question. All right. That said, let's bring in the first question here. And this comes from Chuck Chuck. Thank you for the question, Chuck. To both, what are your interpretations of Ruth chapter 2, verse 3, within your views of predestination or for foreordination? Do you believe that Ruth truly happened to end up 
on Boaz Field. Uh, Porter, you want to try to go at this one first? Yeah, I'm, I'm just pulling up the verses right now. Um, Ruth okay. chapter 2, verse 3, she went and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her house uh, to light on part of the fielding belonged to Boaz, who is the kindred of Eliminac. Uh, okay, so uh, what, do I, what do I believe about this in terms of predestination? I believe that those who follow Christ can be influenced by him, that, that Christ can invite us and tell us to do certain things at certain times and that this will ultimately work out for our good. I don't think that this is fundamentally different from Christ's invitation to go visit a neighbor who is sick or any other thing. I, I think that ultimately those who are in Christ, those who love him, are invited and enticed to do things. But that is done of our free will and not just because God declared it. All right, uh, Curtis? Yeah, so I would, I would just say that because I think the scriptures have really clear and consistent view of predestination that nothing happens outside of the council in the will of God, that God predestined that Boaz would be her kinsman. I guess uh, interlock herself with Naomi. That's the proper word, but um, that God had a plan all along to save her from death and to ultimately use her and Boaz to bring about, as we know, she's in the lineage of Christ. So I believe that God orphans are bring her there, orchestrated because, again, that's what the Bible says, gaining from the end and works out all things out of the counsel of his own will. So that really shake my view of predestination. All right, all right. Thank you for the question, Chuck Chuck. Hope they answered in good fashion for you. All right, we got another question here. This is going for you, Porter. How do Mormons escape determinism if everything is reducible to matter? Wouldn't even a gods act according to the laws of physics and motion? Uh, how do we... Well... Um, well, I, I, I don't exactly know uh, the foundation of the question. How do Mormons escape determinism if everything is reducible to matter? I, I don't know if we believe that everything is reducible to matter. I believe that spirit and matter come together, that they coexist, that they're eternal. Um, but I, I don't think that uh, that means that because something happened in the past, all things are determined from that point on. I'm not, I just don't understand the correlation between the two parts. All right, Curtis. Yeah. By the way, I just like uh, profile. He's one of my theological heroes. Um, I think in in this this is one thing I think I need to kind of reduce. Say all viewpoints hold to determinism. All viewpoints hold to determinism. The question is how consistent because method that God predetermined that Christ would come into the world, he would die all for himself. God has a plan for when things go wrong, but somehow that the literally the eternal destination of mankind is outside of the scope of sovereignty of God's plan, purpose, and decree. It's just not very consistent. Either you're consistently going to be or not. Like that's just the way things are. So everyone has a deterministic view of how consistent are they with it. All right. And we have a question for you, Curtis here. According to one LDS doctrine, members who meet at at a number of certain criteria are predestined to become like gods. Isn't this teaching found in Genesis chapter three, verse five? If so, who first taught it? 
Genesis 3.5. I don't know that I've I don't know that I've ever heard that one before. I've been doing apologetics with LDS for like almost ten years at this point. Unless unless he's referring to uh, God knowing what will happen of them if they eat of tree of good and evil. Uh, maybe that's his question. Um, I don't really understand unless he's saying that knew that by eating of the truth like him, um, which is, you know, biblical standard doctrine, but I don't know that I've ever heard an LDS ever kind of spring that into, therefore men will become gods. In my time of interfaith dialogue, most of the time I usually hear Psalms 82, but I, I don't know that I've ever heard Genesis 3, but that's not to say someone hasn't taught it, I, I just haven't heard it before. All right, Porter? Uh, who, well, okay, so, uh, if the Genesis 3 verse 5 talks about the eyes of, of Adam and Eve being opened after they take the fruit, and therefore they become like the gods. Um, they become like Elohim, uh, it reads in the Hebrew, I believe, um, knowing good and evil. And so we, we gain a characteristic of God, knowing good and evil, after we fall from the fruit. I, I don't know if that would necessarily mean, uh, that we are gods or, or anything like that from that scripture. I don't know who's the first one that taught it. It seems to me um, that that the doctrine of deification, that we become one with God, that we inherit his divine attributes is clear throughout the scriptures. Um, so uh, Genesis 3 verse 5 may be used in that context. I, I'm not exactly sure where that doctrine originates or who first taught it in that way, but it may exist by some person that says it. I don't know. All right. And here's a question for you, Porter. Since Mormons uh, believe the Bible has been corrupted, does using the Bible to answer any question work when debating with a Mormon? <laughs> um, that is a really good question. And I, I thought about addressing the difference of, in epistemology um, between, between our various sects. Um, using the Bible alone, I don't believe it's sufficient to understand all the truth which God has revealed because I believe that there's continuing revelation. Now, the Bible has been corrupted is, is a slightly... Truths have been taken away from the Bible. We, we see prophecies and books mentioned in the Bible as scripture that are not contained therein. Uh, we know that, that not all the prophecies taught by Christ are, are in them. Um, but but I wouldn't say that it's, that it's wrong in what it says. Uh, I think that's very seldom... It, um, the case. I, I, some there's certainly some mistranslations between uh, different versions. We believe the Bible to be the Word of God as far as it is translated correctly, um, and so the Bible is sufficient to talk about uh, differences in faith. It's just not the totality of God's revelation. All right, uh, Curtis, any thoughts? I would just say that um, that in, in accordance with the Scripture, the leaven leavens the whole bread. And so, you know, I have a friend of mine who's a Muslim. Do I think the Quran teaches certain correct God is uh, is monotheistic? He has a revealed real and moral law. Like, yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. What I draw upon a source that I do not believe is inherently, in its totality, revealed from God. Or not. So, I guess for me, epistemologically, you can't start with Scripture if you're if you're going into a sufficiency of Scripture has already been removed. But there's still enough of there to build upon. To me, you build a halfway foundation. Just you can't build a house upon that. And even if we are to concede that modern day revelation is to come, 
then we still have to have a standard to measure that by. But you've already admitted that the previous standard can't be enough to judge standard. So I don't know how you can consistently turn to scripture only when it's convenient. Like that, that would be my review of things. All right. And here is another question for Porter. How can you truly get a fundamental view of predestination from scripture when you don't believe as a Mormon that the God of scripture always existed as an eternal being? Oh, we certainly do believe that God has always existed as an eternal being. Um, this topic has been extensively written about by men like Blake Osler. It's talked about in the 93rd section of our Doctrine and Covenants. Uh, we do believe that God is eternal in himself. Um, also, yeah, so I, I, I think that the foundation of the question is incorrect. All right. Curtis? Yeah, I would, I would just say that um, I have a lot of respect for the fundamentalist Mormons who treat Brigham Young because Brigham Young did actually teach that God was once a man like us, passing through tests like we did, learning as we did, and condemned Orson in his view. And he went as so far as to say that this was revealed to him by God, which is really interesting because Bruce McContney in Seven Her openly denounces Brigham Young's view as a heretic. So... I would say that first-generation Mormons absolutely had no bones about it. God continues, and he learns as we learn, once like we are. And how that changes is really beyond question, because the Bible does openly say from none. He's always been on his throne, and he learned from no one. No one gifted him anything, and there's never been a time where he, any disagreement would be a violation of God's own So. All right, all right. And we have another question, Porter. Not a lot of questions for Curtis. Uh, seems pretty heavy, Porter, man. Uh, thank you, Jay Box, <laughs> for the question. How can you imply that God would be unjust to save some and not others when all are guilty? Those who are not saved are getting what they deserve. God is not unjust. He's sovereign. Mm. I think that the um, idea of justice means that we uh, universal. Well, the, the the idea that God is universally just requires that He gives what people deserve universally, and therefore, if He's giving some and pardoning some, um, I don't believe that's really the idea of, of justice fundamentally. If you went to a judge and a guy in front of you had murdered three people, and you had uh, crossed the traffic incorrectly and the judge decided in himself to pardon the person in front of you but to hold you accountable I wouldn't I wouldn't say that that judge is really just I would say that that judge is arbitrary and so therefore even though you're both guilty justice requires that you both receive the same mercy and the same punishment otherwise you cannot be fairly judged um, so he might still give you a ticket but if he's punishing if he's excusing the person in front of you of his own free will then that's not really justice uh, in its actual conception. All right, Curtis. I, I would just say that so it goes to what do we inherently believe about God? Himself does just grace on some and not others, and that's all throughout the Scripture. Um, for example, I go back to Isaiah ten: the king of Assyria des desires to destroy God's people. God destroys him for his wickedness. Paul delights in killing sinners, and God opens his eyes and turns him into an apostle of right Both men are receiving something from God, 
neither man was one man is getting what he absolutely deserves and that's the beauty of grace and mercy god is not giving us what we deserve but he is enacting justice because he nails all of our injustices at the feet of the cross so justice is still meted out it's not abdicated and both people are getting wants for them one is justice and the other is mercy and both those things this would character we as christians don't have to hit his attribute because we believe he's transcendent and and by nature immutable all right and this would be the final question didn't have a lot of questions tonight uh this kind of just for for i think curtis has his fan on (laughs) it's causing him to cut in and out it's getting a little difficult to understand him Oh man, I thought that was a question. That's more of a statement. She tagged me to it. I thought it was a question, but more of a statement. So yeah, Curtis, make sure you get that fan off, man, or get into a cooler room or something. So you have to have that fan on. But um, that's all the questions, guys, uh, for tonight, man. And uh, appreciate you guys for coming on Gospel Truth and uh, sharing your time with this man. And uh, you know, one thing I appreciate is when. You know, people come on and they're able to engage in a conversation uh, without having hostility towards each other. Even though there is obviously a hard, rigid line of disagreement, uh, you guys are able to converse and talk about these things in a respectful manner. So that's always appreciated. Um, So do you guys have any uh, closing words for each other or for the audience uh, before I let you guys go? Sure. No, I'm thankful to be here, guys, and I'm grateful for the opportunity to um, talk about uh, scriptures and the doctrine. Um, I would say I think that largely um, uh, it's been a blessing to talk tonight. Um, I I also believe, as as I've stated, that God is just and merciful, uh, fully competent, and that each of these attributes um, raises him up above what is contained within the doctrine of Calvinism. So I guess that's that's really uh, where I would stand on the issues. But I'm very grateful for Marlon for hosting me and Curtis for debating me. Uh, thank you all for coming. All right, Curtis. Yeah, I would just I would just say that um, even within the Reformed theology, what we see expressed is that God seeks maximum glory in His people, and all throughout the Old Testament, when God delivers His people over and over and over and over again. He says, I don't do this for your sake, but I do it for my name's sake, for my glory, for my for me, so that people may know that I am God. So to me, what we ultimately could in Calvinism is seeing our state before God, which is wicked. God have mercy upon us for his sake, for his glory, for our good. And we actually maximize the glory of God because we understand before God, which is unlike lovable peace is lovable through the through the work of Christ which he has predestined for us to do and to work and, and to walk in good gifts because we are his handiwork so with that being said I'm going to go smoke this pipe for the glory of God and I'm going to go to bed for work so <laughs> alright guys appreciate you guys you guys uh, look, maybe, maybe we can do this again sometime you guys take care and God bless alright All right, another great one in the books. Uh, I thought the date turned out very well, and I appreciate you guys for coming on. So, what do you guys think about the debate? What do you guys? How do you guys think it went um, with this debate? 
Um, I thought it went fair. Um, I thought it went well. Uh, I thought I was. Go I, I know we got uh, Porter's position on the subject matter, but I was like really hoping that I would hear more about more specific Mormon doctrine as it concerned uh, predestination. But maybe we could do that another another time because I was really looking. I was really interested in that, and I'll probably do some reading uh, on my own as well to try to really uh, fine tune the understanding of uh, the Mormon position on predestination. Uh, but nonetheless, I am thankful for you guys for joining us. And uh, I look forward to the next show. Remember, the next debate is, uh, I think, Brandon Nero and Michael Burgos, right? Uh, Dr. Michael Burgos. So that is going to be fun. Remember, Brandon Nero is a one is. Dr. Burgos is a uh, Trinitarian. So looking forward to that one. And I hope you are as well. So with that said. I'm going to get out of here and I pray that you enjoy the rest of your evening. All right. Enjoy the rest of your evening. And remember, look forward to the next show. And the way that you look forward to the next show is by subscribing and that notification bell. That's how you stay in the loop. That's how you stay in the loop to God's truth. Make sure you hit the subscribe button and that notification bell so you don't miss out on any shows, debates, or interviews, or commentaries. Make sure you please do that. All right. That's it. I'm out of here. May God bless you and may God keep you.